0: Hi everyone, you're listening to what just might be the hottest new podcast out there in Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you guys for what I think will be a really special episode. This is actually going to be the first of a two-part series I'm doing on the Syrian Civil War. This one will drop this week, obviously, the next one will come next week. The first stage today, we're going to be talking about kind of the religious side of the Syrian Civil War, We'll do a little bit about the background of Islam, the split between Shia and Sunni, and how that affects what's taking place currently with Assad in Syria and the alliance partners that are joining sides there. Next week, we'll be doing a little bit more of the political side of the Syrian Civil War, the geopolitics of the region, the various political players, and how that factors in especially on more of a global stage, as we'll touch on Russia and the United States and and some of the other global partners. Now, this isn't a religious podcast, but I do think it's really important to understand some of the religious and cultural backgrounds of the people groups there, the different sides to these conflicts, and kind of where a lot of this animosity comes from. So let's talk a little bit about the split from Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, and then I'll jump into kind of the split within Islam into Shia and Sunni, and kind of the different sects and denominations that take place within Islam. So let's start kicking things off with where Islam split from Judaism and Christianity. And this goes all the way back to the story of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this story, I'm just going to kind of touch on some of the, the basics of it. So Abraham is considered the patriarch of all three Abrahamic faiths. They actually bear his name in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And Abraham is really important in all three. Now the story of Abraham is quite long, but the part that really applies to the distinctions between the faiths took place when he was promised a son. The Lord appeared to him in a vision, and he basically promised that the land of Canaan would be his, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Now this was a problem for Abraham because he didn't have any children at the time, so it's really hard to have descendants if you don't have any children or any offspring. And God goes on to describe to Abraham you know, all the various lands that his offspring would, would own, which includes the Hittites, the Kenites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Jebusites, all the various ites. And he said, your descendants will own all of this territory. Again, this didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were trying to figure out how this would work. Because after 10 years of living in the land promised to them, they hadn't had a child yet. And so Sarah comes up with this plan and says, look, I'm clearly getting to be too old. I'm not having any kids. Maybe the way you're going to have descendants is through someone else. And so she basically offers her Egyptian handmaiden, a woman by the name of Hagar, to Abraham, hoping that Hagar would bear him a son. Hagar does become pregnant and have a son, and this son is named Ishmael. Now Ishmael, we'll get to in a minute, but he becomes kind of the the line of the Arab people and the progenitor of the entire branch of Islam. Islam basically claims that their entire lineage and genealogy goes back to Ishmael. But 13 years later, and at this point Abraham is 99 years old, Sarah is 90 years old, so both of them are well past the childbearing age, but God comes to them and basically says... Sarah, this 90-year-old woman, is going to have a son as well. Sarah hears about this, she laughs to herself, thinking they're both too old for this. But within a year, she actually does become pregnant, uh, miraculously, and bears a son, and this son becomes Isaac. And because Sarah had laughed at the prospect, she named her son, he laughs, Isaac, That's, that's what Isaac means. But not long after Isaac is born, you start to develop this rivalry between Isaac and his mother, Sarah and Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, because there's some debate about where that inheritance is gonna go. Ishmael is the eldest son, but he is uh, through a handmaiden, not through the wife. And so there's some question about which of the two Abraham's descendants would come from and where the inheritance is gonna go. Sarah in particular is quite harsh towards Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael liked to tease Isaac. He was 14 years old. He liked to tease his younger brother. And so Sarah asked Abraham to send the other two away and that Ishmael would not get any of the inheritance. Abraham is bothered by this, they're both his children, and so he goes to God. God says, don't worry, both sons will make great nations. But this is where the original split takes place. As I mentioned earlier, Ishmael becomes kind of the father of the Arab people and Islam. Isaac becomes kind of the father, the patriarch of the Jewish people, and ultimately Christianity as well. And so this rivalry between Islam and kind of the other two Abrahamic faiths really starts here. Now obviously Islam doesn't come along for quite a while longer, but the Arab tribes obviously become a great nation to encompass much of the Middle East. So God's promise is fulfilled here in both Isaac and Ishmael end up having many descendants that become large nations. There are a few small differences in the accounts between the biblical account, which I'm obviously most familiar with, and the Quranic account, which I have read, but uh, not as familiar with all the background and theology and context. But this family squabble between two sons of Abraham, the patriarch of all three major Abrahamic faiths. And actually I should mention here that while these are the three main Abrahamic faiths that have the most number of adherents, there are actually other Abrahamic faiths too. The Yazidis are technically Abrahamic, the Druzi faith, which is a really interesting group we'll get to in a minute. Uh, even the Rastafarians, the Baha'is, all technically can claim to be Abrahamic. Okay, so that split explains the animosity between, say, most of the Middle East and Israel and Christianity that you see from a lot of these terrorist groups in particular, but also among a lot of the, the more moderate adherents. But let's talk a little bit about the split within islam because this is where it gets really important to understand when you're talking about the syrian civil conflict is who are the sunnis and the shias the two major denominations of islam where does their distinction come from and why are they fighting so muslims believe that abraham and ishmael go off to modern-day saudi arabia and they kind of found the arab race their prophet muhammad is a descendant of ishmael And this is the real start of their religion. Now Islam officially doesn't start until the 6th century, but they really believe this is where it begins. And so Muhammad, as their final prophet, when he, as the founder, dies, there is a lot of disagreement about who takes over for him as the next leader of this new religion, Islam. In his lifetime, Muhammad had united a lot of different tribes in the Arabia region into a single religious entity. But when he died, a lot of those tribes disagreed over the successor. And so there were two main candidates for succession. There was a man by the name of Abu Bakir. This is Muhammad's very close friend, a collaborator. It's thought that he was the most qualified because he knew the most. He was the closest to Muhammad. And so he was kind of nominated as the first caliph. But there was a pretty sizable minority, some of Muhammad's companions, who believed that succession should be kept in the bloodline. And so they nominated a man by the name of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Um, I'm just going to call him Ali. And that's what he's usually known by. I don't want to butcher that anymore. But he is the cousin of Muhammad. He's also a son-in-law, but he, importantly, he is in the bloodline. And so there is this disagreement between Abu Bakr and Ali. And this split becomes the primary driver of the animosity between the Sunnis and the Shias. The group that becomes the Sunnis was the the larger group by far. They're the largest denomination of Islam in the world today. And they were the believers in Abu Bakr, Muhammad's close friend. The Shias come from the group that believed in Ali, the cousin, the bloodline. And so they're about 10 to 15% of the world's population of Muslims today, so they're much, much smaller. Now, I'm going to go into each of these denominations separately and talk about kind of the sub denominations, where you're going to find these particular sects, and what their relationship is to the Syrian civil war and conflict. But let's start with the Shias. You are going to start with the smaller group. Again, this is about 10 to 15% of the world's population of Muslims. Mostly, you're going to find them in countries like Iran, Iraq, Bahrain, Azerbaijan, Kuwait, Yemen, some in, some in Lebanon. And they can really be divided into three categories, colloquially called the Fivers, the Seveners, and the Twelvers. And this mostly is down to how many Imams they recognize. But we're going to start with the Fivers. The Fivers are mostly called the Zadiyas. This is a group that's mostly found in Yemen. And they are really the only branch of Islam that really can kind of be considered polytheistic. I know that sounds really weird because Islam is considered a monotheistic faith. But there's a tradition in Islam where there are 99 names for Allah, their God. And the Zadiyahs kind of sort of believe that those 99 names are actually 99 separate beings. And so you can kind of consider them to be polytheistic in that sense. They're taking place in Yemen. They're a really big deal in the Yemenese civil war that's taking place right now. Don't play a huge role in Syria, though. The next ones are the Seveners. And they obviously recognize seven Imams. And they can mostly be divided into three categories. You have the Ismailis. Which was a much larger group at one point, but are now mostly gone. You have the Assassins, or sometimes called the Nazari Ismailis, and you have the Druze. Now, the Assassins are probably most well known because they actually had a pretty large terrorist group way back in the early centuries. Uh, they called the, assass- the Assassins, where we get our word "assassin" from. The Druze are kind of a Gnostic branch of Islam, they've mixed Islam with a lot of other things, they're often not considered Muslims because of this, and frequently they get persecuted a lot by some of these extremist groups because of it. Uh, Interestingly, the Druze don't believe in evangelism, they don't believe in converting people, you're either born a Druze or you're not. And so they tend to not evangelize. Uh, It's very, very hard to know much about them because they don't really see a need in sharing. And there's no need for them to tell you about their faith. So they're a really kind of mysterious branch. But they have popped up a lot in recent news because of the persecution that's taking place against them. Now, the important branch of Shia that we need to focus on for Syria are the Twelvers. Now, the Twelvers recognize 12 imams, and they are the largest branch of Shia. And they're mostly found in Lebanon and some in Iran. Uh, About 85% of all Shias are considered Twelvers. It's actually the state religion in Iran, so that's the biggest proportion of the population there. And mostly they believe that they're kind of waiting around for the 12th Imam's return. They believe he already came many, many years ago, vanished mysteriously one day, and will return as their Mahdi, or their Messiah, and usher in the apocalypse in the end times. Now, they're important in Syria because of one particular sect of the Twelvers called the Alawites. This is a an interesting sect, interesting denomination. They reject Sharia law. They're much more accepting of things like drinking alcohol. Uh, they've kind of deified Ali to a certain extent. They are still a little bit mysterious, but they play a really big role here because Bashar al-Assad, who, if you're not familiar with this, he's the president of Syria, he is a Shia Alawite. And this is important because if you remember when I was listing the countries where you find the most Shias, I did not list Syria. And that's because Syria is actually a Sunni country. The main population is Sunni, but they are being led by a Shia Alawite in Bashar al-Assad. And this also explains why you have countries like Iran, who are siding with Assad and the Syrian government, because they have kinship religiously with Assad because they're all in that Shia Twelver branch. But let's take a minute and move over to the Sunnis. Now the Sunnis are the largest denomination of Islam by far. They constitute about 85 to 90% of the world's Muslim population. Sunni Islam is actually the world's largest religious denomination, period, followed by Catholicism. Now, as I mentioned before, Sunni tradition states that Abu Bakir becomes the first caliph after Muhammad. They basically think Muhammad did not clearly designate who he wanted as a successor. And so they put it up for a vote in the Muslim community. And they claim the Muslim community acted accordingly in voting in Abu Bakir. And this distinction with Shia has driven political tension uh, throughout all of Islamic history and that has recently been exacerbated by the, ra- the rise of Wahhabism, which we'll talk about in a minute, is a sect of Sunni and a lot of ethnic conflicts as well. Now, there are several branches within Sunni. I'm not going to run through all of them in detail, but just so you know, there's a couple. There's the Shafi'is, the Maliki's, the Hanbali's, uh, the Hanafi's. Now, the Hanafi's are important in the region for one big thing. Uh, So the Hanafi's are a more scholastic version of Islam. They're much more focused on the scholarly approach. But when they start mixing in some Deobandism tradition, which you find in India and in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, uh, you start mixing in some of the ethnic codes, the Pashtunwali codes. The Pashtun people are very prevalent throughout that region, especially in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But when you start mixing those together, you get a particular ideology that is most famous for being the ideology of the Taliban. So the Taliban is this branch off of Hanafism. Which is a Sunni branch, but they've mixed in some of the Deobandeism. Which is kind of this like revivalist movement, and they've mixed in some of the ethnic codes of the area, the Pashtunwali. This is actually why the Taliban doesn't really get along well with other terrorist groups even within that area, because they're seen as having taken pure Islam or Orthodox Islam as a lot of Sunnis like to refer to it as, and they've mixed in a lot of other things that have made them not pure anymore, which is why they don't they don't get along with say ISIS or Al Qaeda or many of the other groups in the in the region. Now the most important denomination within Sunni to understand, especially for Syria, is a group called the Wahhabis and a hybrid version of them called the Salafis. So Wahhabism and Salafism are very similar, although they don't like being called the opposite. They, they often butt heads, uh, but they are very, very similar. The, the Salafis are, are like the Wahhabis, but they've kind of added a few extra small things. Uh, now the Wahhabism it was kind of a more recent addition to the pantheon of Islam. Came about in saudi arabia in the 1700s it's a much more strict version much more strict adherence they don't do a lot of saint veneration uh, those type of things so they're they're much more conservative ideologically and religiously now this is really important because this puritanical wahhabism that you find in saudi arabia when you take that twist it into this hybrid of salafism and twist that a little bit further you get groups like al-qaeda and ISIS, uh, the Islamic State. So these infamous terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are on the Sunni branch of the Islamic tree, spinning off of Wahhabism, Salafism, and then they kind of have their own brand of that. Uh, They do consider themselves to be pure Islam, so they don't get along with a lot of the others, but that's roughly where you'll find them on the overall tree. I should also mention, just while we're talking about it, there is a third denomination Alongside Shia and Sunni, and those are called the Karajites. And sometimes you'll hear them called the Khawarij. Now, they split off very, very early on in the history of Islam, also kind of around this crisis of leadership after the death of Muhammad. Essentially, they broke into a source of an insurrection, a revolt, because they disagreed about some of the arbitration tactics that were taking place within the other fighting tribes of the Arab people at the time. They were very anti-arbitration, anti-mediation. They believed that if two parties in, in the faith were fighting against each other, you cannot come to some sort of mediation tactic. And they were to fight one another until God commands them to stop, basically. They also thought that choosing a new ruler or a new imam belonged to God alone, and that any sort of vote of the people or arbitration to choose a new ruler was, was wrong. And they really believe that any Muslim, it didn't even have to be an Arab, could become the new imam as long as they were morally irreproachable and as long as God was the one who was judging and appointing them. Now, they are notable because they have some very extremist doctrines that set them apart from both Sunni and Shia branches. In particular, they were very quick to move to revolution against anybody that they thought was not a legitimate ruler. And actually, they, uh, when Ali, if you remember right, he was the successor in the Shia branch, but he actually became the fourth caliph uh, of all of Islam as well. So the Sunnis actually do recognize him as a caliph later down the line. But the Karajites actually managed to assassinate him at one point because they thought he was not a legitimate ruler. So they're very, very quick to rebellion, very, very quick to insurrection, and very quick, honestly, to kind of mass killings as well if they thought that people were were straying from the faith. Now, because of these extremist beliefs, they have frequently been compared to groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, and other kind of like-minded terrorist groups because they do share some radical approaches to how you deal with non-believers and how you deal with with illegitimate leaders. But most of these terrorist groups, like the Islamic State, very, very strongly reject that comparison with the Karajites. Now, the Karajites are not a particularly big group today. There are very, very few of them left. So they don't play a very major role today. Uh, But you do hear this term bandied about a fair amount, because some of the enemies of the Islamic State will reference ISIS as being the Khawarij or the Karajites. And to an extent, the word Karajite has become kind of synonymous with extremist. And so you have Muslims almost using it as a taunt to mock Al-Qaeda, to mock the Islamic State, because it it kind of associates them with this 7th century, very early on extremist cult, seen as very derogatory to call them that. I should also mention that there is technically a sect of the Karajite movement that does still exist today. They're in mostly North Africa, Oman, a and Zanzibar, but we're talking maybe a total of like 500,000 members and they're a much more moderate subsect of them. The super extremist Karajites, the ones that were so much more puritanical and fanatical and so quick to kill, have largely died out. Uh, And actually, they didn't even really get along with this subsect that still exists today in certain places in North Africa. So it's hard to even say they're truly of the same branch, but they do kind of come from that same split. So let's get to this question of how exactly does this play out in the Syrian Civil War? Because the Syrian Civil War obviously started as, as this kind of small protest rebellion that's really spun wildly, massively out of control. You know, we started out with some pro-democracy protests back in March of 2011. The government fired on some demonstrators, which led to more protests, which descended into war. And now we're talking you know this entangled web of alliances and death that has lasted now, I think we're going into year eight, and encompassed a large chunk of the Middle Eastern world and started to draw in a lot of outsiders as well. Now, next episode, we'll touch a lot on the political side of why these outsiders are playing a role. But within the Middle East, it's important to understand these two branches of Shia and Sunni and kind of some of the smaller subsets. Because as as I mentioned, Assad is considered a Shia Alawite, and he is a minority leader in a Sunni country. And so when the Sunni population had their kind of uprising, we saw other Sunni countries on that Sunni branch start to ally with them. You had countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, which is in that Wahhabi branch. You have uh, Turkey, Jordan, Qatar, and you have a lot of these other kind of rebel groups that pop up as well, too, that are also you know from smaller areas, but also consider th- themselves in that Sunni category. On the Assad government side, you have countries like Iran, Iraq, you have groups like Hezbollah, which is a Lebanese terrorist group that is mostly Shia, and they are much more supportive of keeping a Shia leader in power in Syria, even if they kind of disagree with some of his tactics, they see a lot more benefit in having a Shia Alawite leader. And some of his pro-government militias in power, then potentially allowing him to be deposed, and in a Sunni country, would see a Sunni leader come to power there. And so this explains a lot of the Middle Eastern alliances that have popped up. And it's even highlighted some of the long-standing rivalries between other countries. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran have this long-standing rivalry, and I'll touch on them a little bit more in the next episode because a lot of that's political. But but they're also on opposite sides of this religious split too, and so you see these kind of long-standing rivalries being reawakened because of the Syrian conflict that has really, again, started as kind of this democracy authoritarian issue, but it's really become much larger than that where you're seeing almost like a proxy conflict among what should be kind of political islam as well as what true islam is i mean this sunni shia divide was mostly kind of contrived at the beginning of this war which again started much more politically but because of these alliances has really spun into becoming a proxy war for the supremacy of what islam is supposed to be and it's kind of reawakened a lot of these old rivalries. Now, obviously, the Middle East has been fighting pretty much ever since the beginning with terrorist groups, but not, not just them either. A lot of these countries battle each other, and a lot of that comes back to this divide between who the successor of Muhammad should have been And the Syrian conflict has really reinvigorated and put new life into that argument on both sides, really, because you have, again, a a minority Shia leader in a Sunni country. And so the potential there for the entire ideology of that governing body to change could really affect the way the Middle East looks going forward, Not, not even just from the outside, but actually with with within the Middle East as to what borders are, what political Islam looks like, what the relationship of the Middle East to the West looks like. And there's a whole host of other potential ramifications of this conflict that have spun out of control uh, just in the last you know, seven plus years. Uh, but we're going to get into a lot of that on the next episode. Tune in next week. We'll touch more on the proxy conflicts, the political side of this, where Russia and the United States fit in, and we'll also kind of go into more detail on some of these internal rivalries between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, Qatar, this concept of political Islam and what that's really all about. But until that episode drops next week, I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about the Sunni-Shia split and kind of the history of Islam and how that applies to what's going on in Syria right now. As always, hit me up on Twitter, R underscore Kenny. Uh, follow me there. Follow me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction novels under. I have a book on Amazon. It's called Precipice. Check that out. If you'd like to talk more about this podcast, support it in any way, or advertise on here, please let me know. Contact me. Love to talk to you more about it. But until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics, and I'm signing off.